Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome. I recently had the pleasure of talking with John Abel about his really fascinating new book, Redacted, The Archives of Censorship in Transwar Japan. That was published with the University of California Press in 2012. Now, how do I love this book? Let me not count the ways, but at least name some of them. It's a really beautifully argued, very, very, very rich study of what seems like it would be a relatively simple, um, or at least simple to name kind of concept, right? Censorship in transwar Japan. But in the course of opening up this subject and opening up this very focused context um, that he looks at, John manages to speak simultaneously and really in a very sophisticated and very inspiring for me way to the fields, not just of Japanese literature, but of body studies, of translation studies, of histories of observation and the invisible, of archival studies, of ways of thinking about and studying the inscription in its many forms, of silences. I mean, just reading this book, whether or not you think of yourself as being interested in the history of modern Japan, is super eye-opening if you are at all interested in text the kinds of technologies of text, of sound, of silence, of production of knowledge, of the way that bodies are engaged in this. I mean, there's just so much in here to think with, and I really have taken a lot that's um, been very formative in the way I've been thinking about the way I read and what I'm reading when I do read. It's just a wonderful, wonderful work. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough. And John was very generous in sitting down to talk with me about it over Skype. So I hope you do read the book. It's absolutely worth the time. And I hope you enjoy uh, listening to our conversation. I certainly did. We're here today to talk with Jonathan Abel about his new book, Redacted, The Archives of Censorship in Transwar Japan. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, John, and thanks so much for being with us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So could you start us off, uh, John, by saying a little bit about yourself and your background? How did you come to the field of modern Japanese literature in the first place? Uh, Well, it's a a long story. I don't know how personal you want me to get. but I, I, you want, I, whatever you want to share. <laughs> I, I could uh, start with, I, I guess, my uh, first experience of Japan, which uh, was going there on the JET program, like so many uh, Japanese scholars in my uh, generation, um, where previous generations had gone uh, as part of the occupation forces uh, and, and such like this. Um, there's a whole sort of new wave of uh, of scholars that had their first glimpse of Japan through this uh, um, 
enterprise of the Japanese government, which was bringing in, uh, and particularly the, the Ministry of Education, which was bringing in uh, people to teach English, but then also French and German, uh, and now sports uh, to to high school students and uh, junior high school students all around Japan. And I uh, got that job at, uh, in the early 90s after uh, graduating college. And that was my first experience with Japan. And uh, sort of never left uh, in, in many ways, um, but I've always been interested in literature. And so, on my return um, to the states, I started studying uh, Japanese literature um, more intensely um, than I had while I was there, and that then led to uh, um, a simultaneous uh, P- uh, PhD as I was making Japanese TV commercials uh, in New York. <laughs> Um, uh, for a production company. Um, and uh, so, so it was a sort of uh, a, a circuitous route, but um, I, I eventually got there. Um, and uh, um, in terms of the, the context of, of the book, the uh, initial idea uh, at the dissertation stage uh was to do a comparative study of German, uh, Japanese, and U.S. censorships during the pre-war period. And uh, for the dissertation, uh, after doing a lot of research on Germany, Germany got dropped out. And then for the book, uh, the U.S. got dropped out. So uh, it's gone through through many uh, different sort of imaginings before it got to the, the book version that's in, in your hand now. Wow, so as a dissertation, this was explicitly a comparative project. That's right. My um, uh, PhD is actually in comparative literature, not in uh, Asian studies, though, as as you know from from grad school, um, uh, the comparative literature department that I was in uh, basically required all of its uh, graduate students to get the fulfill the PhD requirements for their, their, their field of specialties in addition to some extra comparative literature requirements. So I did everything that a, you know, Asian studies person has to do. And then so, um, it was the idea of, of, uh, the comparative project, um, because the field of comparative literature often gets, uh, criticized for not be, you know, if, if you're, uh, a comparatist, rather than being an expert in more than one thing, the, uh, the criticism is that you're an expert in nothing. And uh, to sort of get around that criticism, they had us uh, do this. Whether it worked or not is is, <laughs> is a question, but uh, that, that was the theory behind Well, I think, and we'll get to this certainly over the course of our conversation, but one of the things that the book does so beautifully is actually... Um, intersects a little bit by or with one of the things that we're talking about um, at the very beginning of this conversation, which is the way that scholarship about um, about censorship, about Japan, about culture, about all kinds of things intersects with the disciplines as they currently function, as we currently practice them, and how we might uh, use this kind of scholarship and use this as this book as a case study to really rethink some of those disciplines and rethink the way we engage with. And and assume certain things about this discipline. So actually, this is um, this conversation about your early training and the kind of training that brought you into the dissertation and then ultimately to the book is super germane to, I think, a kind of work that the book uh, succeeds really well in doing. Now, Thank you so much. Oh, of course. <laughs> so the book itself, uh, really brilliantly, and, and I've already said this um, 
for listeners, I've said this to John already before we started recording, but I'll just say it for you guys. I loved this book. It's a book that makes so many contributions to so many different fields, and it's so wide-ranging. And people interested in archive studies, in histories of the body, in studies of translation, even in histories of observation and the invisible and the image, all will find something really um really interesting and really germinal, I think, in the book, regardless of whether you work on Japan or not. So it takes us specifically, uh, it does this by taking us specifically into the practices and performance of different modes of censorship in transwar Japan. And we'll talk a little bit about that concept of transwar Japan and how that shapes the book in a moment. So John, how did you, you've spoken a little bit to um, the difference between the nature of the dissertation project and your uh, your sort of envisioning of this as a project in terms of your graduate studies and the nature of the book that resulted, which is in some ways quite different from this project that it started out um, as being. Can you say a little bit and, you know, as much as you want in whatever way you want to about that transition from dissertation to um, ultimately the published book? Were there any major transformations aside from um, that, or perhaps a better way of asking it is, what led you uh, to transform the project from this early comparative project to something that's very much focused on um, Japan? And were there any other major transformations or major noteworthy um, issues or opportunities um, along the way as you transform this from one uh, kind of format to the other? Sure. Um, well, I guess the, the first thing, uh, I should probably give it a little bit more context before I get into some of the, the uh, transformations. And um, when when I began the project, there were sort of, um, I guess, kind of th- three areas of, uh, for uh, inquiry for people interested in uh, Japanese literature. Um, and uh, that had kind of been defined by... Uh, the you know the recent uh, uh, slew of books that had had been published uh, say uh, over the course of the eighties um, uh, and nineties um, and th- they were you know th- things that that we're all sort of familiar with uh, ideas of uh, modernity studies in, in Japan and um, if if you didn't have modern in the title of your book working on modern Japan it seemed like uh, there was a problem in particular if you didn't have modernity um, and so there's a, a lot of books. Uh, dedicated to that. Uh, many books dedicated to uh, the I novel, the Shosetsu, um, this uh, um, interesting sort of um, uh, quasi-autobiographical form that uh, often gets identified as being um, the the modern Japanese uh, novel form. Um, and then uh, under the influence of uh, a single book that got uh, translated, a, a critical book by uh, Karasani Kojin, The Origins of uh, Modern Japanese Literature, um, you had a bunch of uh, um, work being done to identify new zero points for, you know, you know new origins uh, for different areas of modern Japanese literature, often at the generic level um, and often associated with shisho sets. So the idea of uh, some books is, you know, where does shisho sets begin? What's the first shisho sets? All of this kind of uh, uh, thing. And and in many ways, I was trying to position myself outside of uh, those debates um, because I... I, I, I found them to, to, to be kind of circular at, at a certain point um, and, and counterproductive. Uh, in the end, what, what you'll find in the book, as we're probably talking about, is, is I re- reproduce many of the problems. <laughs> 
trying to get away from. Uh, originally, I think that, that, that that's maybe uh, uh, one of the uh, um, the downfalls, the pitfalls of, of the book. But it uh, it also, I, I guess, shows that that. Uh, um, you know, some of these problems are ineluctable and, and we just can't get uh, around them. So uh, that said, uh, in terms of context, uh, in terms of uh, how, the, how the thing changed then, uh, was uh, a lot of it was me kind of uh, learning that my critique of these other sorts of areas was, was not as, as harsh as, as the young graduates might think that it was, or as devastating, I guess, uh, as the young graduates might think that it was. And so... Uh, Sort of coming to understand uh, that through through articulation of my own project, um, and when I articulated my own project and and wrote the dissertation, um, I, I guess w- one of the things uh, that was starting to become clear to me was the importance of the archive at the dissertation level. Um, I had just discovered that uh, many of the banned books that I ended up uh, looking at when I was in Japan doing dissertation research and then back uh, in the States at the Library of Congress, um, I, had fa- I had found just bef- basically just before I finished up in uh, 2004, I had found a, uh, a bunch of uh, copies at the Library of Congress. And, and I said, what the hell are they doing at the Library of Congress? This is very strange. Um, that these books banned in Imperial Japan were at the Library of Congress. And I started asking those sorts of questions late after the the other chapters were all written um, for the dissertation. Um, And I had then a chapter put in about the archive uh, that that I put in sort of after the fact. Um, And as I was rewriting it uh, for the book, I realized that what one learns from the history of this archive is precisely the same lesson that um, I, I had learned over the years of, of studying censorship and the structure of the archive itself is uh, in uh, a kind of parallel relationship to the structure of censorship. And therefore it provides a um, kind of clear way of understanding the structure of censorship. So I, I kind of folded that into the, uh, and made that much more overtly part of the uh, argument for, for the book. And, uh, that's one major change. Another major change is, I, you know, my advisors at um, in grad school at, at Princeton were very much uh, interested in questions of literary theory, as as am I, as was I, and uh, I knew that I also had some uh, contributions to make in terms of literary history and and history more broadly. And so I was lucky enough to uh, get a postdoc at the Reischauer uh, Institute um, at Harvard. And when I was there, I had the opportunity to have what they call a writer's workshop and brought in, uh, I was able to bring in, I think, five uh, Japanese uh, scholars. And I could choose who I wanted to bring in. And I purposely chose people who I thought were more in the literary history vein than in the literary theory vein, if that distinction makes any sense whatsoever. Um, and I uh, tried to get their kind of opinions on uh, some of the uh, chapters and, and arguments I was making. And what surprised me was uh, the, the, the chapter that I thought I made the biggest historical contribution in, um, they just didn't get. Um, and they didn't get it not on the basis of it of there not being in it there, uh, but uh, that for for them the argument itself was uh, encumbered by uh, theory 
and they didn't want to have to read the theory in order to get to the history. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I thought I created this beautiful chapter that sort of beautifully interwove theory and history and and cultural you know products, and and uh, I, I just thought it was you know the best chapter of all. But what I realized sort of through that meeting was was that you know if this was going to actually get read by people, I needed to do something different, and that. Uh, that one meeting ended up turning that one chapter into four chapters, the last four chapters of the book. Um, um, kind of uh, explode the, the, the certain various uh, kind of strains of arguments into different subsections. And um, one of those chapters is sort of extremely historical. <laughs> I, w- I would call it like the extreme form of literary history, uh, which is just the history of the, these asterisks or redaction marks in one journal over 20 years, um, how they get used and, and, and looking very closely at, at, at some of the, the, the things that all came from this one meeting and, and uh, in a sense transformed the, the finished product of, of the book. So, you know, I, I, almost half of the book now is uh, those four chapters. Oh. You know, I hear this over and over again from people who I interview for the channel, um, just the formative force of having the opportunity to have these kinds of small workshops devoted to workshopping your book manuscript. I think University of Michigan does that for their junior faculty. Everyone who I've spoken to who's had an opportunity to do that has just raved about how amazing it was for um, helping them generate the finished product. So I think everyone should have an ideally have an opportunity to do that, right? Certainly was for me. I've heard, I've heard it go both ways, though. I've also heard of people being paralyzed after it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't know, you know how much sense it makes to um, extrapolate my own experience, but um, but certainly um, it was a good one for for me. Fair enough. Well, and and the chapter that you're mentioning is one of my favorite chapters, and so we'll we'll definitely get to that, and I think we'll get to that fairly soon. So, um, in terms, so as we get into the body of the book itself. In a series of case studies that sequentially develop and add texture to your major arguments, the book explores some central questions that you lay out right at the very beginning of the introduction. What does censorship leave behind? Where do we find its remnants and how do we measure its traces? What do we find if we search for the material behind the X's, behind the asterisks of the censor? So from its very um, inception, the book is very much concerned with bringing together the issues of censorship, literary history, but also issues of the archive and how we know and how we might know what we think we know um, as people who are interested in studying this history. So let's set the stage by starting off um, by talking a little bit about the big picture of Japanese censorship history as you're laying it out here. So there's a standard view of the history of censorship in Japan that you're both engaging and pushing on um, here in the book. So very briefly, um, in the period between 1927 and 36, more books were banned by censors and more passages were redacted by editors than ever before. And this is in Japan. You, um, In your words, the bureaucratic imperial censorship of the pre-war and wartime regime was known, it was explicit, and it was direct. In contrast to this, right, there's, a, there's usually understood to be a break and censorship... Um, 
in the post-war occupation period acted not in this way that was explicit and direct, but under a shroud of secrecy. It was post-war censorship was silent. It was implicit and it was indirect. Now, in many, many ways, you're actually really complicating this received story. And we'll talk about many of the ways in the course of our conversation. Crucial to this view, and here's um, what I wanted to um, ask you to talk a little bit about, is something that I gestured at at the very beginning, and this is the way we think about periodization. You propose that we think about this history not strictly in terms of this break, in terms of pre-war and post-war, ne'er the twain shall meet, but instead as a trans-war space. And this seems to me to be um, very much in line with the, the way that you're asking us to think past, think through, um, and think beyond um, dichotomies and many forms in the book. So can you start us off a little, um, or by talking a little bit about this idea of a trans-war space and how it shaped the way you've approached your arguments in the book? Sure. I mean, first thing, um, which uh, maybe uh, isn't so clear from, from the title, a lot of people actually have... Uh, uh, attributed this notion of a uh, trans war to to me uh, after reading the book or something. Uh, it's actually something that uh, was uh, uh, many scholars have, have been uh, dealing with, and uh, John Dower in particularly got um, uh, associated with, uh, with the term as as he was trying to articulate the ways in which there are many continuities between uh, wartime and uh, post war and occupation. Uh, Japan, uh, particularly looking at, you know, who's leading the country and things like this. Um, and to many, uh, you know, my, my thinking about, about, uh, this sort of started there with, 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 uh, Dower. And, um, I, I think, uh, if I build on the idea, uh, and modify it at all, it, it it's, it's this idea for me that to think of the war itself as kind of block that bleeds out in both directions and both goes, you know, backwards into the past um, so that we can consider, you know, uh, some ancient texts, uh, pre-war Japan, and, uh, and it continues on till today so that some people still remark uh, uh, about today as post-war Japan. And there's a way in which uh, the Japan there is the thing that connects both of these um, uh, two vectors. Um or rays, I guess, um, and uh, th- th- those two 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 rays kind of create this transwar uh, space. It's a way of getting beyond uh, kind of crass historicization that um, I think these origin debates I was talking about earlier. Uh, you know, people wanting to find a zero point, which even Foucault, uh, upon whom uh, uh, Karatani's uh, book is probably largely based, though a lot of people associate it with Daman, uh, who was at Yale at the time Karatani was writing this uh, book on the origins of modern Japanese literature. In fact, it's probably more Foucault's uh, history of sexuality that he was reading at the time uh, that had a deeper impact on his notion of trying to find an origin for modern interiority and, and uh, the, these kinds of questions. And for me, uh, this, this kind of crash, crass historicization, uh, trying to find this sort of objective point where, where things transform was not really what Foucault was about. And Foucault himself says he wasn't about doing z- 
zero points, but rather finding kind of salient uh, uh, transitions between uh, uh, moments when things uh, come to change. Um, and not even moments, sort of, uh, I, I should say, like modalities of change or, or you know, decades, you could think of them as. And so, so in that sense, uh, the trans war was a, was a kind of intervention for me to kind of get at that function uh, where uh, we could think of it not just as uh, the origin of something, but or a kind of a, moment, a point on a line, but more of a space where things happen and uh, certain kinds of things tend to happen. And it's not that those tendencies uh, aren't in place uh, at other times, but that uh, they somehow become more salient in this one uh, particular space or area. Um, so it's 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 you know a kind of critical intervention. It becomes, if anything, a critical intervention. Uh, the way I'm using it as opposed to perhaps the way that um, uh, it was originally set out for, for uh, by Dower, uh, although he, I guess, is using it as a critical intervention into uh, histories that are, are thinking of the post-war as a wholly new moment. And so by reconnecting it, uh, that was of, of major importance. Uh, re- this idea of reconnection, though, as you said, is very important to me, too, um, and trying to reconnect um, the... Uh, Occupation period censorship with imperial censorship is a, a big part of what the book is trying to do. Um, the idea there being that um, imperial censorships, whether the American or, or dealing with the American Empire and and its uh, censorship or the Japanese one. Um, tend to reproduce the same sort of structure of censorship. Tend to work within the same. Uh, uh, same effect on, on the literary product. And, and that's sort of what my point of focus was for the book. Right. And I mean, the, you're getting at also, and even in invoking um, ways that perhaps scholars and readers and those of us who just, you know, think about these things um, just, you know, for other reasons, um, might separate American versus Japanese or pre-war and post-war. Even the nature of the archive that you're using, and you make this point really beautifully early in the book, also urges us to not just, you know, rethink these temporal divides, but also rethink even the divides between um, things like a notion of a coherent Japan versus the notion of a coherent U.S., right? And and as um, it embodying different kinds of archives, the archive, um, to turn for a moment to this other really important part of the argument of the book, the archive that you're using is really both multiple archives. It's not one collection, but you're also working in a kind of kind of meta archive here that spans that spans many different regions, many different nations and many different languages in in a lot of ways. So to get at that, to start to um, sort of take apart another of these binaries um, that you are, I think, really successfully urging us to, to think past and think beyond. Let's talk about the archive in a little bit. Now, um, much of the analysis and arguments of the book stem from a really wonderfully nuanced reading of the traces of the censor of different kinds of censors in transwar Japan. And these practices take a number of different forms. The traces take a number of different forms. And rather than asking you to sum those up at the beginning, I think we'll get to them um, in turn as we look at the other sections of the book, because the changing nature of these practices is very much at the heart of the history that you're telling. Now, collectively, these marks um, of, of various sorts make up a transnationally distributed archive for your work on censorship studies. Now, 
part of the argument you're making in the book hinges on the nature of what these censorship marks are, what these censorship practices are, and how we then find them in the archive. So before I ask you about what the archive um, consists of uh, for one of these practices, I want to ask you to speak a little bit to a major um, difference in types of um, censorship practices that you point to, which um, results in different types of censorship marks. And that is the difference between what we might call explicit censorship versus implicit censorship. So with the implication or assuming that one of the things that you are doing in the book is helping us to complicate um, the notion that these are two different things, um, could you speak a little bit to this, um, this pair of objects, implicit and explicit censorship? What's the difference and what are you trying to do in the book with these um, concepts and, and how do you um, suggest that we complicate these concepts as well? So in general, implicit versus explicit censorship, what's up with that? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, you laid out a, a, a lot of issues and, and they really actually all kind of get to uh, one of the book's main focuses, which is uh, the issue of, of positivism um, within both censorship study and uh, area studies at large. Um, and so at the, at the level of, of censorship, the way that this works as, as, as far as I see it is, is that first, if you, if you think about this divide that you were talking about before, the pre-war, post-war divide, uh, and, the, and the grand narrative that's typically told is that uh, wartime imperial censorship is explicit. And what they mean by that is everyone knows and, and points to the office, uh, the, the uh, Metropolitan Police Headquarters, and says that's where everything gets censored. And everyone knows that it's there. It's overt. It's on the page. People are talking about it. Um, people, you, can, you can open a, a book from the time and see these, these marks on the page. Um, and it, it's explicit. Whereas... Um, under the um, occupation forces at a moment when they're trying to introduce democracy, at a moment when they're trying to in introduce ideas of freedom of the press, the very notion of the existence of a uh, office of censorship is contrary to their goals. And therefore uh, it has to remain secret. It has to remain hidden. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's the, the Wizard of Oz thing. You, you shouldn't talk about the man behind the curtain. Um, and, you know, and everything will be fine as long as it's, it's left implicit. What I found was, was this dichotomy itself as I started looking at the historical evidence for these claims that, uh, that are made in this is, is, is that uh, this dichotomy itself is something that's kind of always present in uh, any story of censorship. That is to say, there's always an explicit trace, an explicit aspect to what's, what we call censorship, to us calling something censorship. The calling of something censorship is an explicit trace itself. Um, and there's an implicit thing that, that you're not able to uh, mention, say, everything that got censored when you're mentioning your censorship. There's also something implicitly lost in the mentioning of censorship in these, uh, these traces we find of censorship. Uh, so uh, th this manifests itself in the 
uh, what we'll call the explicit marks, right? These these asterisk marks on the page in uh, imperial uh, under imperial censorship is you have this explicit thing in your face. It's, it's there, but at the same time as it's there, this kind of materiality of of the mark on the page that something has been removed. Um, the, it's implying, of course, that something is not on the page, something that's that's lost. So there's this kind of du- dual structure to um, to censorship that something we can both sort of reach out and touch, the sort of material mark, um, but also um, this other thing, which is intangible, which is you know almost transcendental. It's, it's always over there and, and can't be counted and can't be traced and, and can't be touched. And uh, what I began to see was that it was there's a kind of ethical argument for reminding ourselves that every time we see a trace to not think that we've, we've, we've captured something <laughs> because we always need to remind ourselves that there's this other thing that may have also been lost and that this is just a kind of marker, a sign of that other thing. Um, and this, this works at the level of, uh, of, the, of the, the sign on the page, but also at the level of the archive itself. So, that, you know, I'm finding all these cool books that had actually, you know, the books of the censor with their writing in it and everything. But at the same time, I, uh, rather than, you know, just thinking I found some sort of treasure um, to also think that, it, that this treasure itself is gesturing towards uh, all the stuff that we don't have in the archive. So let's actually talk about that a little bit because um, in it's pretty clear, or at least it's relatively clear from our conversation, and it's very, very clear in the book. So I'll just mention that for listeners, what kinds of materials constitute an archive and what kinds of materials that you'll find in the various archival collections that you went to um, that include these very explicit traces of the censor's marks. And um, and it's, it's very clear in the book what kinds of things you might find when you go looking for that. But methodologically, how do you get at censorship practices in a post-war context where we don't have the same, or in any context where we don't have these same sorts of explicit traces. And so what constitutes the archive of these implicit or hidden or unstated and untraced forms of censorship for you? Well, this is sort of another uh, question. So the... Another way of, of talking about this, what we've been calling the explicit-implicit divide, is, is a, a suppression and repression, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the notion that uh, you know suppressed books are something that are, are are done by police, you know, it's something that comes from outside, and repression is the the sort of internalized component of, of that. How do you measure the internalized component of that? Um, for, for me, once you identify. Once, once you identify that these two things are connected, uh, the implicit and the explicit or the repression and, the, and suppression, um, and knowing that one of these ends up eventually in a black box, right? The, the, uh, the, the, uh, you, you can only bring the implicit so far. You can only kind of show that the implicit is there, but you're never going to get into it because it's implicit, it, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's repression, right? It's this, it's a psychological black box at some points, uh, or it's, it's the, the story that an author thought of, uh, but decided he could never publish it, therefore never wrote it. Um, and you know, and it was a, it was a, a fleeting brain fart in, in an, in an author at the time, you know, that kind of thing. If you, if you think about, uh, uh, that itself is being repression. How do you get to the brain fart, right, is, is the question you're asking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 
And, and how do you only... archive it, right? How do you, how do you constitute the brain farts as part of an archive? Exactly. Because it's, 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 it's gone, right? It's, it's almost immediately gone. It's, you can't even smell it, right? <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, Maybe. no, I'm going there with you. So it's, it's cool. <laughs> The, the idea that it's it's gone so quickly um, and it, it and it's fleeting. The only way you can get at it is through imagining it, through dreaming it, through th- thinking about it. Um, but the thing that enables you, the thing that's a trigger to imagine it, is all of the stuff we do have, all the positive material we do have, all the explicit material we do have. Uh, that sometimes we even have an author saying something like, "I thought I would write a story about." Uh, you know X, Y, and Z, and uh, but but in the end, I decided not to do it because it was a pointless exercise. So moments like that is are are the most explicit trace you'll get of this repression. Um, that's explicit, right? And and so then we're into this 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 realm of the explicit. It's not when we find something like that. It's not that we found the implicit, but we found the mark of the implicit, which is itself explicit, or we found the the you know the the mark of the absent thing, the, the present mark of the absent thing is another way of thinking about it. Um, so that's the closest you'll ever get. And, and um, to a certain extent, censorship is really nice because it allows us to kind of mark a moment uh, of literary reception um, that seems to connect the state with the individual writers and, and things like this. Um, but just because we have that, and, and this is this was sort of my you know getting back to the personal stuff. This was sort of my misapprehension about what censorship was. I thought you know going into the project that I would be able to sort of um, nail down the way that ideology, ideology and uh, uh, literature intermingle through censorship, right? Um, because it seems like it's such a concrete moment. And you have a kind of clear, it's not just, oh, I read this text and it feels like the, the ideology of the nation is bearing down its weight down upon it. But here we have a kind of historical moment where somebody actually said, you can't write this, you know, so somebody within the state. So it seems like you have this kind of uh, vision into what's going on. But even then it gets away from you because of this, this sort of uh, this implicit factor, or what some people call the chilling effect of, of censorship. Now, this is all very germane to understanding not just the um, some of the central concepts of the book, but really the organization of the book. The book is organized, as I think you briefly mentioned before, according to the different natures of the different kinds of archives you're working with. And by nature, um, I'm not thinking, and I don't, and you're not talking about, I think, in terms of contents, but rather their structures and their processes. So part one of the book looks at how information, or part one of the book is called preservation. And it looks at how information about censorship is known through three kinds of sources. The archive, which we've already talked um, quite a bit about, indexes and essays. So let's talk about um, a couple of these. Now, can you talk a little bit about indexes um, as sources for understanding the history of of censorship? What's the nature of an index of banned books in this context, and what kind of work does it do here and also um, in the context of what you're arguing here in the book? Well, uh, from a very practical uh, point of view, and and since we're doing this sort of biographical thing, the indexes were the sort of first... Uh, source I, I had uh, in this project when I went to Japan for dissertation research, I started to want to read things that have been banned. And 
when I found a couple of these indexes of banned books, I thought, great, now I've got my reading list. And then would go from those indexes to find the books and I'd read them and then think about, you know, why, why they got censored and things like this. Um, and it became clear to me that, that uh, pretty soon into the project that, that reading in that way was actually um, problematic for, for a number of reasons because, A, the, the bureaucracy of censorship is always um, sort of haphazard, even in, in its uh, uh, most thorough, even in the most thorough bureaucracy, you know, there's no logic to what gets through and what doesn't get through. Um, they have sort of policies, but they're not uh, rules that are strictly enforced always all the time in the same way because they're humans at the end of you know the uh, the process who have to read the books and apply the policy. And um, but then I started thinking about it, and the, and I noticed that a bunch of the indexes that I was using were actually published at the time by these uh, bibliographers um, who. I didn't know anything about, and I started asking myself, you know, why was it important to them? Why did they want to uh, start indexing banned books almost in the moment of their banning? Why was this important to list the titles up and write down the dates and the authors and sometimes the reason for the ban and publish it, sometimes in very, very small uh, publication runs of 500 or so, um, privately printed indices. But why was this something that was important for them? And uh, there are a number of answers that that chapter sort of finds to that, but um, it's, it's the beginning of a kind of archival impulse that's public. So as opposed to the censor's archives, which a lot of the material... Um, that I worked through is based in that is the, the censor's own copies of the books, uh, which were secret up until really the 1970s. Um, this was information which was circulating, albeit in a limited way, to, to a limited readership that was trying to, in, to some degree, return the material that was taken out of uh, circulation to, to circulation. Um, what limited way these bibliographers could and with what limited information they had. And so, uh, you know, the, the chapter is basically based on who these, figuring out who these guys were and thinking about what their, their, uh, their intentions were in, in trying to, uh, to collect this data and, and publish this data. Now, one of the other kinds of sources that you talk about here um, is the essay. One of the really important and interesting characteristics of popular essays about censorship during the high point of book banning in Japan was a tendency, as you note here, to equate censorship with death and killing. And there are all kinds of really wonderful examples that you give. But what I want to ask you about is perhaps a larger phenomenon um, that really struck me that this is this seems to me to be part of, and this is this uh, persistent connection between text and the body, this relationship that censorship seems to draw between um, not just the text or writing and the body, but specifically between flesh and text in terms of 
wounds and damage and torture and killing and scars and pain. You, you talk about the phrase literary casualties in this chapter as a marker of the relationship between bodies of flesh and bodies of text, between wounds on the body and wounds and scars of the censor's marks. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the way that um, this kind of embodiment of censorship comes up here and, um, and what your thoughts are about that. Uh, I've been thinking about this recently because I've been reading a, um, a book by Amy Hungerford called um, I want to say it's called The Holocaust of Texts, uh, which it deals with uh, this notion of how texts become personified, uh, which is a little bit different, but, but parallel to what I'm talking about. Um, and she makes the critique of post-war American uh, fiction that, uh, that personifies the text as being sort of ethically corrupt. Um, on human rights grounds, that in the in the in in the situation where you have uh, human rights violations going on, to say someone killed my text or the, the editor or, or publisher killed my text uh, is it's, itself does damage to the sort of rhetoric of what it means to be killed, and you know, in other political contexts. And, you know, I was thinking about this in terms of whether or not that was a relevant argument that could have been made about, say, 1930s Japan, when I'm reading these essays that are being published by um, authors who had been uh, censored, who are saying, I had just been censored for this article I published or tried to publish, um, and they were then writing about censorship. Um, and this itself is another kind of archive of censorship. When I was looking through that, one of the things that, that, that uh, came up was uh, an overwhelming sense of, of, of death. And whether or not in the context of, you know, people being brought in uh, to the thought police offices uh, and tortured, mm-hmm. changed the circumstances or changed the ethics of using this personification. And I think it does. It, it, and, and I think that it's a valid point that uh, Amy Hungerford makes uh, perhaps about post-war uh, U.S. But if we think about uh, the sort of immediate context of what's going on, and we see this, there's a great poem by um, Nakano Shigeharu uh, called Laws, which is an anti-censorship poem. And he's talking essentially about how the police are taking pincers and pulling on his tongue. Uh, and this kind of image uh, of of the writer and the writer's body uh, kind of being one with the word uh, is is one that is um, both powerful, but I think it's powerful in the context of real torture going on, of, of writers actually being killed at the hands of police, uh, that, that it's one that then makes sense and has a kind of ethical valence uh, to it and, and power to it uh, precisely because of the uh, the situation of of real violence, and it and it doesn't actually do damage to the uh, it it doesn't take away our sort of ethical understanding of of the of the real violence to say that the the texts were also killed. Uh, my understanding um, of of the ethics here, what you have is a um, a personification that's actually getting us to think about censorship as a parallel 
way of enforcing uh, the power of the state on uh, the humans, <laughs> on human beings. <laughs> the humans. Uh, on, uh, that, that is to say that, that there's this powerful way that censorship is in fact uh, happening uh, at a level that is more insidious in some ways than torture because it's getting into the minds, right? Is, is the, and it's becoming this implicit uh, or, you know, getting into this area of repression. And one way of expressing the, um, one way of expressing this dynamic of how censorship actually works um, from this kind of positive, touchable material thing in, your immaterial psychological uh, space is to talk about it through the body as the body itself as this kind of intermediary or, or medium for, for, uh, for this to happen. Thank you, John. Now, as we move um, into the second part of the book and beyond, we're going to see that the body also comes up in different ways. Um, but you're moving us here from a context in which we tend to think about uh, censorship in terms of repression, in terms of um, preventing a certain kind of discourse or voice, and into a space in which um, you're really showing us the productive capacity of censorship. So part two of the book looks at the connections between censorship um, and its roles in really stimulating the growth of three literary genres that were directly affected by it, proletarian, erotic, and war literature. Now, one of the really um, important points in this part of the book, at least for me, that emerges is the connection between two categories, two major categories of censored works, sedition and obscenity. Now, you talk about this here in the context of an example of a writer and editor named Umehara Hokume, whose work um, in relation to these two categories um, is, is really a case in point in the book and for it seems like for you um, of a way to look at the productive capacity of censorship and he also seems just like a really incredibly groovy character so could you talk a little bit about him um, and the way that this opens up for us a way to think about uh, censorship as having a productive capacity in this particular context sure uh, first though before I get into uh, uh, and his um, uh, biography a little bit uh, I should say that um, was, was one of the original questions of the at the level of the dissertation that I was uh, trying to get at was why were the categories for censorship in uh, many many nations the same around the same time? That is to say, why were was sedition and obscenity both really uh, a, a problem for uh, nation states in the interwar period uh, and actually really since the late nineteenth century? And what I found was this sort of kind of a global phenomenon. And in fact, there's a, there's a, uh, um, League of Nations committee on obscenity, um, that Japan was a party, uh, to, and actually the United States, though it wasn't a member of the League of Nations, um, sat in on the uh, committee, uh, meetings of, of this, um, and so there was something that was sort of consonant for all nations that they all agreed that obscenity was 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 some uh, somehow problematic, um, and they uh, all wanted to to ban it. Though they all drew the lines in different places and things like this of what was obscene. Um, 
there was still this kind of consensus that this was a problem. And, and you know, to some degree, it makes a lot of sense that it was associated with uh, the trafficking of women and prostitution and things like this. Um, so there's a very kind of political valence there if you look at the, the minutes to these uh, meetings. But there's also a sense of... Um, or a sense that I wanted to, to pursue is sort of why is this the case? Why why are all these nations focused on this? And I never really uh, got an answer to this until I, I, I read a book uh, about the uh, about censorship in the United States, which was looking at the consonance between the. Um, progressive movements and the Puritan movements in the United States around the 19th century. And uh, the argument is that that these two movements divided over the issue of birth control. Um, And uh, that is to say, everyone could agree that we should get prostitutes off the street and that this was a problem um, in the late 19th century. But then when it became uh, about education and about uh, uh, sex education specifically, uh, there was this kind of split, and that split, you know, continues today in things like abortion rights. Um, so, so that story itself is a kind of interesting one and a telling one for what I found since in uh, the histories of censorship elsewhere, and that is that um, with questions of population control and uh, and in, in Japan's case, in, at, at certain moments, actually wanting to increase uh, the population so that you could populate the empire, um, th- these questions of sexuality take on a decidedly political role. And so that there's, there's no disconnect between sedition and obscenity, that in fact, uh, the, these two things are connected. The, the politics of, um, of eroticism are directly connected to um, the politics in the minds anyway of the of the state are directly connected to the politics of uh, the proletariat movements um, and the the proof of, of that is uh, in the way in which uh, a lot of these censorship things uh, get um, uh, uh, meted out and so you have uh, for instance debates uh, that go on where the state is basically arguing that, you know, if you read more sexually or sexually oriented literature, you will necessarily be having more sex and therefore necessarily be producing uh, more babies and therefore necessarily more likely uh, to be building up the masses and therefore more likely to um, to strike. <laughs> mm-hmm. So things are connected. Um, at all- they're saying, uh, you know, we, we should suppress, suppress uh, uh, contraceptive education because we want to build a population and, uh, and, and move it out to the empire. So it kind of goes both ways at different moments. Uh, Umehara Hokome is this kind of crazy, interesting character who both was uh, deeply involved in um, the publishing world, but also in the proletarian uh, arts movement and, 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 in fact, was the editor of uh, a few early uh, proletarian journals, but at the same same time editing magazines with the title like Perverse Matters and uh, Grotesque was one of the names of his uh, journals publishing, you know, uh, scantily clad uh, uh, pictures of scantily clad women generally, uh, histories of uh, the world history of the toilet, um, kind of crazy, crazy stories uh, of of this nature. He himself uh, translates uh, the Decameron uh, and and also the history of the Russian Revolution, and gets banned for for both. 
And so he, he sort of seemed to me to be a kind of figure that could, I, I could tell this larger framing story uh, uh, through uh, because he so explicitly connected um, these two things, which I already knew from arguments and, and things like this were uh, inherently connected. So uh, he, he's just a, a sort of fascinating figure who's connected to uh, both this kind of strange uh, world of, uh, of uh, erotic uh, circulations of erotic literature and um, at the same time um, these strange uh, publications, this kind of publication moment where there's this boom in, in producing uh, proletarian literature in the late 1920s. Right. Now, also in this book, and I'm not going to ask you to talk about this um, because I want to make sure we get to the um, the part three, which I absolutely love before um, before we uh, get to the coda and wrap up. But in this part of the book, you're also as part of um, outlining this larger productive capacity of censorship. You're looking at the ways that transwar censorship played a role in forming some of the canonical national images in texts in this period, including um, wounded bodies of soldiers and enemies. You're talking about the productive relationship between canonization and censorship. And there's a really great um, set piece that compares images of bodies in two different war novels and the different ways that um, these two novels actually were dealt with um, and dealt with themselves, were, were, dealt, were dealt with by and dealt with um, the sort of censors and censorship organs at this period. Now, part three of the book, um, this was my favorite part of the book. Uh, we talked a little bit about this, and you talked about um, earlier transformations from the dissertation to the book. And this part of the book focuses on marks of deletion. And the marks of deletion, both that left traces on the pages of censored literature and also those that um, don't perhaps leave traces. This was a really wonderful section of the book to read and a really wonderful book in general in terms of your own self-reflexivity about and your attention to style. You've been really, really thoughtful here about using your own narrative style to speak to and to extend the arguments you're making about narrative style in the book. And so this is this part of the work is such a salient aspect of this part of the book. Let's talk a little bit about it. Sure. So, chapter six starts with an epigraph that both is and is not there. And this is one example um, of many places where you've really played with and been really thoughtful about your own use of typography um, and sort of the rendering of uh, the marks of censors and the absence of certain kinds of marks in the book. So can you talk a little bit about, um, especially in this part of the book, your own decisions and your own approaches to typographically and in terms of the space of the page, render the marks of censors and um, and what that process was like for you. Uh, well, start off saying you know don't try this at home <laughs> <laughs> because uh, this ended up being one of the um, uh, more problematic aspects of of going from my own computer to a book, right? That, that it's very easy nowadays to, to play with typography on your computer um, with Unicode and all of this kind of stuff uh, where you can, you know, render uh, fonts very simply and easily. But the moment you try to do anything kind of non-standard that oppresses is not used to dealing with, it becomes very difficult to the point where when I got one of the galleys back on the, the book, all of the things that I had represented as uh, X's and deletions, uh, some of with uh, superscript of the actual text that was being deleted, 
all of those had been deleted out of uh, one of the galleys. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, uh, and something had happened in, in one of the transfer processes that had, you know, just technically deleted all of these these kind of complicated formatting things. Um, and, you know, frantically going back through and having them add them back in and everything, making sure and trying to make sure that they all got back in. You know, it was one of those moments in, in production where, where you think, did I really need to do it this way? Um, but so I'm very glad to hear that it worked for you and that it was the point of interest. So, uh, but, but it was also one of the biggest uh, pains in the neck of, of, of doing the book. Uh, but I do think that what you have to, to a certain extent, to be um, historically sensitive um, and materially sensitive to the moment of uh, of censorship, you have to try to reproduce it. And if you're talking, especially if you're talking about it and, and trying to sort of show what's going on in the archive and, and explain to your reader what's going on, you have to do your best to try to reproduce um, these uh, functions. And so that blank space on the top of the page at the beginning of these four chapters on um, blank spaces and, and, uh, and asterisks uh, was very important to, to me um, to, to, to talk about how, how we could kind of perform uh, the thing that's not there. Um, or is it really there because there's this blank space? And, and to, to sort of talk about this, this issue is yet another way of talking about this, this issue of uh, the implicit and explicit. You know, is that blank space actually something on the page or is it nothing on the page? Um, that, these are the kinds of questions that, that you, you start asking when, when you're thinking about trying to account for not just the things that we can point to and say we're actually censored, but for the work that censorship does beyond that. Now, as part of, before we get to the coda, um, I just want to ask you about one more part of this section of the book, because it does seem to be a really important conceptual move and argument that you're making. Now, the book itself, or this part of the book, looks at the history of and different ways of thinking about um, something, uh, redaction marks or fuseji, right? So you're not only giving us a history of fuseji and a, a account of the different ways that censors used these marks, including um, using the redaction marks for proper names, using them for character, for character replacement of taboo words, and using them um, as in terms of long strings that blocked out substantial blocks of text that the reader wouldn't be able to match up, you know, a mark for a character. Now, you make an argument in one of the chapters in part three of the book that we move from a discussion of fuseji or redaction marks to a discussion of X. Um, and this notion of X and a discussion of X and a theory of X is really, really interesting here. And it seems very important to what you're doing in the book as a whole. So could you talk a little bit about that? This argument, um, well, how are you thinking about X and an argument for moving to a kind of discourse about a history of X? Um, well, one of the you know first things to, to mention is is that I've, I've been I think translating the fuseji this term fuseji uh, as asterisks uh, in this interview, but um, fuseji were not just uh, asterisks on a page; they were also X's. They were sometimes blots, like a kind of a dot on a page. Um, they were sometimes uh, ellipses, they, uh, but. Often in, in many of the magazines that I've I, uh, been working through, they were just strings of X's on a page. And this was something that uh, is prevalent in typography outside of Japan as, as well. But the actual structure of the X 
And the notion of a chiasmus, uh, a linguistic chiasmus, that is something that uh, puts together uh, two things that, that sort of cut against each other using uh, the same words, or thinking about uh, an X as two strikes on a, on a page, was one way of kind of thinking through the, this kind of, uh, implicit, explicit uh, phenomenon or the kind of the, the the positive value of negation itself, right? That, that, that it's, it's one thing to just delete something and, you know, push the words up, up against each other so that there's no marker of what was deleted. And it seems to be another thing to leave the space there or, or put an X in where that, that space is. And the X, because of its structure of having these two strikes, uh, you know, one over the other uh, to form the X as a kind of cross. It, it, to me, kind of signified this this ability to talk about both what's there and what's not there. Mm-hmm. Right. And the, um, the, I'll just say for listeners as we um, come to the coda, there's a whole lot going on in that section of the book that we're not going to have a, t- a chance to talk about, but that's a really wonderful um, really kind of a wonderful model for scholarship in addition to being a wonderful set of case studies and arguments. So there's a case study of the use of redaction marks in Kaizo, a leading and, and very often banned popular magazine that gives us um, examples of some of these redaction marks and the ways that we might think about the chiasmus or the X um, in this context. There's some really wonderful um, discussion as well of non-typographic marks of redaction and the importance of non-typographic images as redaction marks and the ways that artists like filmmakers and like visual artist uh, Kusama Yayoi actually incorporated an attention to this absence and to redaction marks in particular in their work in the visual arts. Um, So there's a really wonderful archive in part three of the book of just ways of thinking about absence, how it has been marked and its productive capacities in ways that I think are really innovative and and quite exciting. And I'm I'm not being hyperbolic there. I really am excited, very excited about this part of the book. Okay, so before um, we come to the close, though, I wanted to ask you just a little bit about the very final part of the book, which is the coda. Now, the coda chapter brings these issues into the present by looking at different sort of practices of and issues surrounding information restriction in mid-20th century Japan. But one of the really interesting things that you're doing here, and this is what I wanted to ask you to speak to a little bit, is to make a critical intervention into the process of historicization. You say here, in short, contemporary historicizations themselves need to be historicized. So can you talk about this a little bit, especially in the context of thinking about disciplines and thinking in, perhaps in particular about Asian studies um, as a discipline, because you mentioned that specifically in this part of the book. Uh, for me, I'll, once I sort of put things together that uh, the archives that I was dealing with themselves were taken to the United States, that is these, these uh, the censored book, of the the Japanese censor uh, were taken to the United States to be used for uh, prosecuting the war crimes in war crimes trial. That was the ostensive reason. Then they get archived as uh, part of the treasures of war in the Library of Congress and the National Archives before uh, some of them were returned back to Japan. 
that story itself, to me, indicates the ways in which empire kind of reproduces uh, itself, no matter what the context is, uh, whether it's an, you know, an empire under a Japanese emperor or an empire um, that is supposed to be spreading democracy and liberty. Um, area studies in the post-war, and particularly Japanese area studies, you know, gets configured because of, uh, in the same way that I guess uh, it, it's getting configured, re- reconfigured now with uh, post-9-11 uh, as, as enemy studies, as a way of, of, of getting to know that, uh, the enemy. And while that historicization is, is really important, and I think um, uh, part of sort of what I'm trying to um, expose here, what I also wanted to get at was the way in which area studies itself has taken the Jamesonian injunction to always historicize as being what it can add, what it can, the value the knowledge that it can bring to the world is its ability to say, um, this is different in this way because I, the area, area studies scholar, have brought a new context to bear on it. And I can uh, show you, based on my archival research, how it fits into history in a way that you didn't already know. And that notion of historicization, while having value, uh, can't be the end of historicization because... All that does, in, in my mind, is repeat the kind of exoticism that area studies at the very beginning was was supposed to get us out of. That is, it can uh, it can make the cultural product of the other place and other time all the more local to that other place and other time, um, which and and make it seem all the more foreign and exotic in the process, not uh, to do what it's supposed to have done, which is to sort of explain. And, uh, and make sense of the cultural object. But if it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that um, it's solely located in that other time and that other place, we still are caught in this, this, uh, this problem. And so what the, the CODA is trying to do is to be at once both historically sensitive, but also showing the degree to which it makes sense to jump out of a particular historical moment, which is why I try to bring things up to the present as it were uh, in the, um, and, and, and the here and the now uh, in the coda. Well, John, thank you so much. I've already taken up a ton of your time. Um, and if uh, given, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd take up even more because there's so much in the book um, that's really worth talking about that we didn't have a chance to talk about. But this is just more reason for listeners to pick up the book and explore it themselves, which I very, very much hope, and I expect many of them will do. Now, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention or signal um, or talk about uh, at, at this close of our conversation, perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Well, um, maybe one last um, thing to, to sort of mention is that uh, in, in the final chapter of the book, that is not the coda, but the final chapter it, itself, I try to move from these redaction marks on the page to things like metaphor and um, uh, to think about the ways in, in which uh, this question of repression gets internalized or displaced onto other things that we don't typically associate with 
censorship. Um, that, that to me is, is the, I don't know, a uh, place for perhaps future research um, if other scholars are interested in doing this kind of thing, looking at um, the way in which metaphor itself changes across the, the war as a result, perhaps, of interactions with censorship. That's great. Now, is, um, as we now move to the future of your work, congratulations on the book being out, and there are lots of opportunities for future directions of research, as you've just mentioned um, in the book itself. But as you look forward now, what's next for you? What project or projects are currently inspiring you? Well, I have a couple of uh, spin-off projects from, from the book that I, I'd like to uh, finish up and, and, and get published. Uh, one of which is is looking at it, images of, of kissing or images of not kissing, covering up kisses uh, in uh, Japan, but also in postcards from the late 19th century um, that are kind of on the world market of postcards. And this was something that was originally a 10-page thing in the, in the book has become a 60-page article. <laughs> And, uh, and and so that's sort of one thing I'm, that's very much connected with this, but it, it, it's uh, it kind of going off in a different direction. Um, I'm also uh, finishing up a uh, another project on uh, two authors that I, I don't talk at all about in the book, but they're the two most banned authors of the time period. Um, and one of them is uh, uh, Miyamoto Yuriko, who's a proletarian writer and um, gets banned time and time again, both in uh, by the imperial imperial censors, but also by the uh, GHQ occupation period censors. And so uh, that, that's something to look forward to as a spinoff from, from, from the book that's coming out. But I'm also working on questions now of, of new media and mediality in my uh, next project, which is trying to articulate a, an argument that um, our fears of new media, them. And, and critiques of, of new media are often based on a kind of historical misunderstanding of new media as it's existed uh, at least since the late 19th century. And so what the book does is it bounces back and forth between um, kind of contemporary buzzwords for new media today and uh, their earlier 19th century antecedents. So, for instance, I, I have a chapter on um, stereoscopy, which looks at 3D television, uh, televisuality today, but also uh, films, and then compares that to some photographers in Yokohama who were taking uh, stereograph uh, photographs and uh, selling them to, uh, you know, Sears robot company for circulation around the world and how this was supposed to connect the people who bought these collections to the rest of the world in a kind of instantaneous way that made the... um, the picture uh, uh, sort of solid right before your very eyes in your own living room. You could connect to Japan and you could connect to China and you could connect to Africa through these photographs that were taken by these uh, Japanese uh, figures. Um, uh, I, I do this multiple keywords. So the, that keyword for that chapter is, is you know, 3D. Uh, I have uh, one on virtuality, which looks at the place of Japan in Gulliver's travels. Uh, Japan is one of the, the only real spaces that Gulliver travels to in Gulliver's travels. And uh, thinking about uh, the way that Japanese uh, translators then dealt with the Japan passage of when Gulliver's in Japan, how do they self-virtualize themselves? 
through that. And uh, I have a chapter on uh, cell phone novels. The One of the, the arguments about cell phone novels that, that uh, made, was made early on was that these represent some sort of brand new mode of, of storytelling that we've never seen before. But the very first uh, ones of them were often about uh, – young uh, women who were prostituting themselves uh, through subsidized dating on the streets of Tokyo, which were very reminiscent of uh, tubercular fiction uh, and, and prostitution fiction in the late 19th century as well. So there's this kind of bouncing back and forth move that, that I keep doing um, to kind of reveal our how our own anxieties have just continued on and they get keep getting placed on very similar objects. Um, so that's that's sort of... The, the next project. I uh, don't know where it'll end or where it's going, but that's the... the... <laughs> well, I mean, as a historian, John, I have to say I'm thrilled to hear about the new projects because it sounds like you're just continuing a work um, or a kind of work that you are very much doing in this book, which is not just talking about a particular phenomenon or a particular case study, but really helping us rethink not only how we use history, how we read history, but how we produce new kinds of histories. Um, and so thank you for that. I'm really looking forward to, to what you come up with in the future. And we will talk again. And thanks so much again for making the time. Thank you, Carla. I had a lot of fun. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us and see you next time. <laughs>